our cancer journey. Hey, OCJ friends, it is Bruce, and on today's show, we have Dr. Arash Asher. He's a leading voice in the survivorship movement, and today he's going to share new information with us about this confounding group of symptoms called chemobrain. We'll also touch on a new concept called premature aging. Stay tuned for more on that, but check out this clip from the show. When our body then is treated with chemo, for example, which is a foreign substance for us, it responds in the way that it was built to respond. You know what, I have something foreign pummeling through my veins. I'm, I'm gonna produce these cytokines because I need to protect myself. So it may not be the chemo drugs itself, but it could be the entire body mechanism responding to either cancer, the chemo drugs, or both that are causing these extraneous symptoms that we're calling chemo brain. Exactly. Got it. The Our Cancer Journey podcast is a place for those impacted by cancer, their caregivers, and their loved ones. Together, we explore ways that we can optimize our lives through the experiences of diagnosis and treatments and beyond into the future of survivorship. And now your host, Bruce Watkins. Greetings, everyone. This is Bruce Watkins, your host for the Our Cancer Journey podcast. This is the place where together we'll explore ways to help you feel better, live happier, expand your self-empowerment, and enhance your life experience. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of our second season of the Our Cancer Journey podcast. Now, before we begin the show and we bring on our incredible guest, and you are going to love this episode with our guest. He's fantastic. I want to say a special thank you to all of you listeners out there. Thank you for embracing this show in our first season and making it so popular and especially for sharing this show to so many people, not only in your community, but across your nations, and in some cases, across the world. We are grateful and humbled that we are doing something that is being embraced by such a fantastic community like ours. So let me tell you about our guest. His name is Dr. Arash Asher. Dr. Asher is one of the most respected and innovative doctors in his space. He's the Director of Cancer Survivorship and Rehabilitation at the Samuel Ocean Comprehensive Cancer Center in Los Angeles at Cedars-Sinai. Let's play the interview and find out just what the heck this chemo brain is. Dr. Arash Asher, I am absolutely delighted to be here today. I've been waiting and anticipating this moment. I've listened to so much of your wisdom and your presentations. I'm excited to put you in front of our audience. Thank you for being on the program today. Bruce, thanks so much for having me, and I've always enjoyed speaking with you, so it's, it's really fun for me to get to do this with you. Well, I can tell you, Doctor, it's enriching, and you're inspiring, and you're incredibly informative, and I know we're going to have a lot of great takeaways on the program today. Thank you so much. Dr. Asher, we could talk about so many things in this world of survivorship, and I know you're a very heavy hitter in this space. There's lots of people that are emulating what you're doing, which is super innovative and effective. I want to kind of narrow down on one topic today, and I'm sure we're going to take off on some others, but I kind of want to start with this concept of chemo brain and this foggy cognitive place that people get in, not only during cancer treatments, which is kind of understandable, but sometimes something that lags on for a long, long period of time afterwards. People in our community, 
They're dumbfounded by it. They're frustrated by it. Sometimes their self-esteem is crushed by it. So let's have a conversation about that. Perfect. Okay, great. Why don't we walk through what this chemo brain thing is? And wasn't there a time when people didn't even believe it existed? And it wasn't that long ago when the term was not generally accepted historically by the medical community. And I think there are a number of reasons for that that we can talk about. I could tell you the first time I encountered this, I, I was a fellow and, and I remember the patient I was seeing when I was doing my fellowship said, I, I kind of feel like Homer Simpson. I just feel like I'm in a, in, in, in a fog, in a daze. I'm, I'm not thinking clearly. And I, and I personally had no idea what he was really referring to. And this was not that long ago. This was around 2008. And I could tell you we've come a long way since then. Well, that's fantastic. I, I've heard different people saying, I think you mentioned it in a presentation some time ago, that there were doctors actually saying that it didn't exist. This was just something minor. And I think it's worth putting that into context. And keep in mind, the lay term that was out there, particularly in the late 80s and early 90s, was so-called chemo brain or chemo fog. I think originally this was kind of popularized in, by the breast cancer survivorship community because it was fairly common. And oncologists responded that, and maybe fairly, that maybe it was just in their head or maybe it's not really a valid term. And their argument was that chemotherapy drugs do not readily cross what's termed the blood brain barrier. Yeah. There's like this wall between our central nervous system and the rest of our body. And they said, you know, these drugs don't readily cross that wall. Therefore, it can't really be real. Well, let's talk about that blood brain barrier, because I've heard this term before. And I know there is some sort of protective physiological process that keeps different types of um, what the word molecules, materials, particular types of enzymes or whatever, from going from the bloodstream into the brain because it could cause havoc. But some things can get through. Just tell us a little bit about that blood-brain barrier really quickly so our audience can understand. Right. So for the protection, right, our brains are incredibly valuable. And, and of course, nature designed our system so we have protection. So whatever is going on in the periphery doesn't necessarily readily get into the brain. And one of the challenges, for example, with treating, for example, metastatic cancer that may involve the brain is finding drugs that can cross that wall, that barrier to penetrate into that tissue. So in terms of what our conversation, right, chemo brain, one of the reasons why that may not be a great term is, first off, I have many patients that never had chemotherapy. Maybe they were just treated with hormonal therapy or surgery or radiation therapy who are still struggling with some of these symptoms. And so chemo brain, again, for that reason, may not be a great term. The second thing I'll share, and this is my working hypothesis on, on what may be going on, at least in part, is I often compare this to someone who may be experiencing the flu. Mm. So you've had the flu before, I've had the flu or a bad cold. And if I asked you, and I will ask you, 
when you have a bad cold, how do you generally feel? Well, like crap. <laughs> Most of us feel crappy, right? Yeah. But if we kind of dig in a little bit further. Well, I feel sluggish. I feel dull and achy, but I also feel dim. I, I feel like dimmed cognitively too. I can't think very well. Exactly. Nobody wants to study for a midterm or read a textbook when you're in the midst of a flu. Well, most bothered, doctor. So we're learning that it's not necessarily the flu virus that makes you feel, in your words, dim, crummy, exhausted. Maybe if, even if you think about those few days when you had the flu, most of us feel, at least for those few days, a little sad or blue. <laughs> And it's not necessarily the flu virus that makes you feel so crummy. It's our immune system response to the flu. Ah, so let's go back for a second. So here you've got these doctors a couple of decades ago looking at these patients going, I've got this super advanced cocktail of drugs. I'm going to inject it in your body. There's no way, according to our evidence-based information, there's no way this stuff is crossing over the blood-brain barrier. So therefore, your symptom has got to be in your head or something. There was actually more at play. So it may not be the chemo drugs itself, but it could be the entire body mechanism responding to either cancer, the chemo drugs, or both that are causing these extraneous symptoms that we're calling chemo brain. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Okay. But let me, let me, if I may, um, please dig into that a little bit more deeply because I think it would help kind of frame what may be going on biologically. Great. So let's go back to the flu. So you get this flu virus and your body responds to these flu, this flu with these chemicals, right? And, and they're often referred to as inflammatory cytokines. And these are things like IL-6 and IL-1 and TNF-alpha and things that I'm sure you don't want to hear about. <laughs> but there are these compounds that our body produces in response to the virus. And there's a number of reasons our body may be producing these things. But from an ancestral perspective, many think that we were created or evolved in such a way that we experience all the things you said, the fogginess, the fatigue, the, the aches and pains intentionally to make us want to rest when we have a flu, right? We would probably still be hunting and chasing buffalo and gathering nuts and berries if we felt great when we had the flu. And it's only because our body is giving us this cue, this message that we need to stay home, stay in the cave and rest until this infection clears and then hopefully resume to our day-to-day -day kind of battles in the greater world. So it's like our, our intellect can't necessarily grab the fact that somewhere deep inside, our biology is turning its resources to fight the illness in whatever way it's going to do, either through the immune system or healing tissues or whatever. So it does this thing where it kind of turns off our desire to go out, to run, to hunt, to go out and study for midterms. It literally forces us down to be quiet and to rest so the body can do its thing exactly imagine i had a wound in the forest uh in my right thigh and my right knee right so my my thigh will become red hot swollen painful that gives us a cue to like lay off the leg until it heals right if we had no pain and no symptoms i, I could imagine i'd still be you know uh out there 
hunting and gathering when you really don't want to be doing that? Well, um, I wasn't in your care at that time, doctor, but I broke my leg in two different places and I was too dense to know it. So I walked on it for four months until it finally, the pain was informative at that point. And uh, I guess walking it off wasn't the best strategy. It actually <laughs> made things a bit worse. So I, I think that's very well put, doctor. Now, since there are a number of different things now that we're talking about that come together to form these symptoms of chemo brain, and, and you know, can we stop for a moment? Okay. You said earlier that this term chemo brain is, you know, while it was kind of concocted by some people that were getting chemo, and you know, God bless them, because they were actually telling us something that was really important and true, there are a lot of people that didn't get chemo. I'm one of them. And I had a lot of problems with my cognitive ability, too. Is there a different name that's been adopted for this? Because I know that when people came to me and said chemo brain, I'm going like, hey, what about me? <laughs> I don't have chemo brain. I've never had chemo, but I got something that sounds a lot like you. Is there a different name we're using now for this? So the medical term is a mouthful, and the preferred term is currently cancer-related cognitive impairment. Uh, what the, well, wait, wait. Can, uh, sometimes referred to as CRCI. Okay, CRCI sounds a lot better to me. than <laughs> That is a mouthful. Still a mouthful, but I think what's nice about it is it, it tells or it allows for a more complete story, right? So allowing us to kind of understand that it's something related to the cancer diagnosis and or its treatment, right? So it's cancer-related in some way, something related to the surgery, the chemo, the radiation, other factors that I'm sure we'll talk about, and that whole experience contributing to these cognitive symptoms. It's really interesting you say that, doctor, because I, I know I'm not speaking for me personally, because I've spoken to lots of people in the cancer community, but when this cognitive impairment begins, I don't think anybody's really prepared for it. It really is a factor for a lot of people. And because you're not prepared for it, it affects you on a number of different levels. Not only does it affect you mentally, because clearly you're not right and not observant and your awareness is down and all that stuff. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But also emotionally, your self-worth, it impacts your ability to deal with other people. To actually know that this is something really medically sound and it's related to this cancer, you're going through something, not only does that relieve you as a human being, it reassures you in a way that it's possible that you can get through it, but it also gives you some idea that it's outside of you and something's causing this. So I like the fact that the word cancer-related is in this now, even though it is a mouthful. It is a mouthful, but again, it probably tells a more holistic story. In my sense is, is that and based on the literature, that most people have some of these symptoms when you're in the thick of it, right? When you're in the middle of chemo or, or surgery, radiation, most people have some of these symptoms. And by the way, maybe we should just talk about what those common symptoms are. I'd love to. Thank you. And it varies, right? So not everyone necessarily has these symptoms and not everyone certainly has all of them, but the most common things. There's a word on the tip of my tongue and I can't get that word out. Oh, yeah. I can't pay attention as, as well as I used to. A common one related to so-called executive function is I cannot multitask, oh. right? Before I used to 
be able to talk on the phone, you know, keep an eye on my child in the next door and, and, and cook a recipe. I can't do three things at once as easily as I used to. Okay. Planning, right? Which is again, a part of our executive function, the CEO part of our brain, short-term memory, remembering names or dates or phone numbers. The challenge with all this is there's no particular symptom that defines this, right? Everyone may have slightly different constellations or patterns of symptoms, but the challenge is that when we're in the middle of treatment, right, we're so focused on just getting through, right, to the finish line that we often aren't paying attention and, and perhaps our healthcare providers are not paying attention but at least in my experience, it's when we are done, right? When you finished that intense period of your treatment, and then you want to get back to your job, you want to get back to your societal responsibilities, when you're trying to integrate into your community and the responsibilities you held, that's when it may come to the forefront. Interestingly enough, doctor, that time is after you oftentimes have left the daily or weekly medical care, and you're seeing your health care provider, you technically are now starting to recover from cancer and you're returning, reintegrating into normal life. And that's the time when this thing hits, when you have less support than you would have had when you're in the throes of the physiological addressing of the disease. Right. So it all, it all kind of synchronizes. And sometimes it's hard to sort out. And I, and I think one of the things that amazed or humbled me very early on in my career is I would see people who finished right that brutal part of the treatment you know and their oncologist would say you know congratulations and they'd bring a balloon you know to celebrate in, in the infusion <laughs> lounge and, and they say we'll see you in three months and amazingly can't tell you how many people told me that that's when the distress really started Right. And I, I, it was amazing to me how connected they felt to the parking attendants and to the front desk folks and to the nurses and the support staff and the janitors and all the people, right? They trusted and really got to know personally during that really difficult time. And all of a sudden, right? That's gone. That's taken away from you. And you just, right? We'll see you in three months. Doctor, I was there exactly. And what sounds so strange is when you just say the words, if you looked at them on paper, you would think, oh, the person built a few personal relationships and they saw smiling faces and that's gone and that's sad. But no, there's something else going on there too, because you're absolutely right. And we're going to talk about social connection in a little bit, because I know that's a big theme in loneliness that you're working with on your program. But I think cancer patients intuitively knew that there were still things happening in them that were not the tumor. It wasn't the scarring. There was other things that had impacted them and they couldn't articulate them at that time, but they sensed, I'm not whole yet and I'm letting go of this network of support. And three months seems like 30 years in the future when you're in that state. I've been there. So Letting go of that support is scary in and of itself. But when you know in the back of your mind, you still may have some issues. That's an issue. And 
I like the programs you've developed, doctor, because it's the bridge between the traditional Western medicine triage care. They're sick. We're going to heal them and they're healed now. They can go off and finish their healing elsewhere and the rest of the things that we're going through. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that there were other things that may be causing these symptoms. I'd like to just really quickly run through them. So let's just dive in. You were talking about the symptoms we face may not be directly caused by the drugs, but could be caused by just this cornucopia of different things in our body. Can you go over those, please? So I'd I'd like to go back to the analogy with the flu, because even though the cytokines probably only partly tell the story, I think it's a a helpful way to illustrate what we think might be going on. So we talked about this idea that we have these inflammatory cytokines, that even though many chemotherapy drugs may not cross the blood-brain barrier, these cytokines can. And uh, just like when we have the flu, it may contribute to that fatigue, to the to the um, the blues and some of the cognitive symptoms that we may be experiencing. Now, one theory is that when our body then is treated with chemo, for example, which is a foreign substance for us, it responds in the way that it was built to respond, right? It, it's doing what it knows what to do, which is, you know, I have something foreign pummeling through my veins. I'm, I'm going to produce these cytokines because I need to protect myself. And so, these cytokines now are being produced on a much more substantive basis, right? Because you're going through chemo for three months, four months, six months. There's a feeling that for a subset of our patients, they're experiencing what's known as accelerated aging. Mm. Like our brains are just aging faster than they would be otherwise. And that's a complicated story that I think is worth unraveling. I would love to do that. I really want to explore the aging thing because I heard you say something like that in a presentation a while back, and it was so deep. There was so much to it. We we probably will wind up having a different podcast on that topic. Okay. But let's go back to what you said about chemotherapy lasts for a long time. These cytokines and other materials that are being produced by our body to slow us down they generally only being produced to slow us down for a very brief period of time. I mean, most flus, what are they? Two days? Four days? Maybe we have one that trails on for a week? I mean, our cancer treatments sometimes are months long, and then many more months of repetitive treatments. This must really, this accelerated cytokine development, this must really take us down, right, doctor? We believe so, and I think... One of the things that we are learning and grappling with, and what I'm really focusing on, is it seems that maybe just a subset of the patients are more vulnerable to accelerated aging. And that's where a lot of the scientists are spending their efforts in understanding what is it about this subset of people that continue to struggle with these cognitive symptoms for months and sometimes years after surgery chemo radiation is done. And I think the good news that we have to relate is many people bounce back, right? Within three months, six months or so, many people get back to their baselines with time. And then the question is, what differentiates that, let's say, 20, 30% 
varies depending on which study you look at, continuing to struggle versus the other 75% that bounce back. Right. And, and two things. One, that thing that you said about reassurance, that a large percentage of people do go through this and they go down and then they have a slow but steady increase back to almost their total capacity. Right, doctor? So we, there is hope with this. This isn't a long-term thing for many. When I see someone in my clinic who's in the throes of chemo and they're concerned about these symptoms, that is always the first thing I tell them, that most people get back to baseline, let's say, within six months. And baseline is their normal cognitive functionality. Exactly. Okay. You know, it's really interesting. I attended one of your first programs, and I was a new graduate. I I had just gone through my treatments. I was still highly affected. I took copious notes because I was so intrigued and moved by what you said. It was incredibly helpful. And then later on, you invited me to attend a program again. I don't know if this was by design, but when I attended it later, my cognitive ability had returned. And I went back and looked at my original notes and I realized, oh, I don't even remember part of this, you know, and it is real. We do go down and come up. But I saw a graph one time, doctor, where there was a line graph. An upper left was where we are. And then as we aged, there is a normal, mild cognitive decline. Sorry for I'm in the elder population out there, ladies and gentlemen. So <laughs> I, can, I can admit that there is a slight decline. But it's a normal, predictable rate of decline. Exactly. And those people that are going through this kind of treatments, while they may decline a little steeply, they can get back to that normal state of decline. Yes. But those other people, their state of decline can last for a long time. So do we have any identifications of who those people might be now? Can we identify them more in advance? Or is this just something that's an emerging field of study? It's emerging, but I think we've learned a lot these last uh, number of years. And, and I'd, I'd love to give you my insights on what we think are, are risk factors. Please. And I think it's important because these are potentially modifiable factors, right? So I really believe that the types of thoughts that we think about on a consistent basis and uh, the types of behaviors that we engage in on a consistent basis can really change our biology. So we're really talking lifestyle kind of things. We're not talking about this is something that's innately done with genes or this is some sort of sentence that they have to live out. People can actually modify and make some attempts to improve their cognitive state. Exactly. And I think what you're referring to is this whole field of epigenetics, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that, again, our lifestyle, the thoughts that we think about consistently, our behaviors can change to some degree which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off, right? What we inherit from mom and dad can't be changed, but the expression of certain genes might. And we've been talking about these cytokines for a while. This, I think, relates to lifestyle and cognitive issues. I like what you just said, because when we in the cancer community sometimes hear, you know, the word epigenetics is, I think, getting out there. People understand that there is a physiological connection and our emotions and our parents' emotions and their experiences and traumas and stuff like that could affect our genes. But the gene expression thing sometimes is a mystery to me and it's a mystery to other people. 
But what you're basically saying is, even if you inherit something, there are factors of the way we're living our life and our lifestyle, our behaviors, our thoughts, our, our food consumption, our rest, that could impact whether that gene that was possibly affected and we inherited, how it behaves, how it turns on, how much it turns on. Is that correct? I believe that to be true. So, OCJ friends, this is where we're going to end part one of the interview with Dr. Arash Asher. I really appreciate Dr. Asher's ethics and him as a human being. And I'm really excited about part two of our episode coming up. So, let's talk about the next show coming up, part two. In the second part of Dr. Asher's interview, we take chemotherapy and expand and bring in new concepts that could influence it. One of the things I was really excited to talk about was about gene expression. I've heard this term like you may have. I didn't quite understand it. So Dr. Asher gives us a little bit of a primer, but then launches into how gene expression could impact our behaviors and our experiences. This was wild to me. I mean, we all know that things in life influence us and affect us in many ways. Well, new science is showing it's true. All those stories your grandmother said or your ancient ancestors were passing down in parables, they may have been right. So please tune in for episode two. It's a fascinating discussion with a wonderful guest, and I hope you appreciate this program. Now, before I say bye, I want to make a request of all of you. I think you all know now that season two of the Our Cancer Journey podcast is upon us. It's been an incredible journey. And if you like this program, if you like the mission that we're doing, if you like the voice and the attitude, which can sometimes be a little irreverent, but it's real and it's genuine and it's down to earth. If you like this show, please share it with your friends, share it on social media, let people know this show exists. Surprisingly, some of the people that have written in and communicated with us didn't hear about the show on podcast apps. They heard about it from a friend, from a friend's social media. They sampled it, and it helped them greatly. So please, share this podcast with your friends, your loved ones, your coworkers, and let's get this information out there to everybody. All people need to find out information that can help their lives. So thanks for listening today. Be sure to tune in to part two of the Dr. Asher interview. And thanks for listening and following the Arcance Journey podcast and checking out our whole new upcoming season. This episode of the Arcancer Journey podcast is sponsored and produced by Fairlead Media. All rights reserved.